0: Welcome to our Soul Food podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. We'll back up to verse 13 for the sake of context. We're in chapter 4. Jesus answered and said to her, <clears throat> "Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst." But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. If you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is from the Jews. Father, I pray that the text would come alive today, and it would do a work in every heart that is represented here. We are all thirsty for something and we know that only you can fill that. I pray you would do that today by your Holy Spirit. We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. In January of 2007, a radio station in Sacramento, California, staged a water drinking contest for its listeners. The intent was to reward the person whose bladder could hold out the longest by giving them a free Nintendo Wii, which was the newest video game system at that time. 28-year-old Jennifer Strange was one of the contestants. She had hoped to win the game console for her three children. She did her best, but ultimately fell short of the grand prize. Tragically, the consequences of her water consumption extended further than anyone would have imagined. Several hours after the contest, Jennifer informed her co-workers that she was going home with a terrible headache. Later that day, she was found dead, lying on the floor of her home. An an autopsy later revealed that too much water had disrupted the electrolyte balance in her blood. In other words, Jennifer Strange literally died of water intoxication. What a contrast to what we have been studying. In the life of Jennifer Strange, water consumption ended her life. But here in John chapter 4, we will see that the living water the Samaritans will drink will give them life. Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. Look at verse 15 with me. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. We are admonished in 1 Peter 3.15 with these words. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. But do this with gentleness and respect. Jesus models this verse perfectly in his conversation with a Samaritan woman. Jesus strikes up a conversation with her by talking about a common event that they both share. This is a fabulous way to begin a witnessing encounter. You could say something like, Boy, it sure is a hot one today. And they might respond with, You know that's right. Now what you probably don't want to say next is, but it's not nearly as hot as hell's gonna be if you don't (laughs) repent. I said probably because the Bible also says in Jude verse 22, and on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others pull out with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. It has been rightly said that we should give law to the proud and grace to the humble. At this point, the woman does not appear to have been clear on the matter of spiritual transformation. Jesus had spoken to her about the water of eternal life, and she seemed willing to accept it, but no conditions had been given. As with any lost sinner, this woman needed to understand two crucial issues before she could receive the living water of eternal life, namely the reality of her sin and his identity as Savior. We will see Jesus address her sin this week, and his identity next week. Her response parallels that of the Galilean crowd who responded to Jesus teaching about the bread from heaven by saying, Lord, always give us this bread. Whatever else the living water did, she was ready to receive it if it would eliminate her daily trip to the well and also give her eternal life. This woman was thinking in terms of material physical water, when Jesus, in fact, was speaking of the eternal and spiritual realm. How often did many make that same mistake today? The kingdom is about prosperity, peace, and nothing but pleasure, thunders so many preachers. But Jesus said, whoever drinks of that kind of water shall thirst again. Why? Because nothing material will ever satisfy the thirst of a soul. And if believers do get thirsty for that old life, sometimes it's because they have drifted back to the old watering holes. They've pulled away from the word, from ministry, and from the things of the kingdom, and they end up dry as bones and as miserable as a fish out of water. Allow me to give us some great advice on living a godly life. Every fleshly thing I see or hear is a seed that is planted in the soil of my soul, and it will come up eventually. Likewise, every godly thing that I do will also come to fruition. It's as if there are two wolves inside of you, one black and one white. The white wolf is life, the black wolf is death. And at any given point you are feeding one of those two wolves through the type of people with whom you associate, and also through what you choose to listen to, watch, and take in. If you feed the black wolf, he will get bigger and stronger. He bears his fangs and starts ripping on the white wolf as the white wolf gets smaller and smaller. But once the black wolf decimates the white wolf, he turns on you and begins to sink his jaws into your innermost being leaving you wondering why you're so down, defeated, depressed, and discontent. On the other hand, if you feed the white wolf of the spirit by doing what is right in God's sight, the white wolf grows bigger and stronger as the black wolf grows punier and weaker. But here's what I want us to remember this morning. At any given point in your life, you are feeding one of those two wolves. Which will it be? So if you say, I know God told me to deal with this thing. I've got tucked away in the garage or locked in the cabinet, but it's not that big of a deal. I've got it under control. I warn you this morning, watch out, because it will eventually overcome you. If you provide for your flesh, your flesh will rise up and give you great pain and difficulty. But if you finally come to the point where you say the fleshly nature will not prevail today, God will give you the energy, the will, the power, and the strength to live a victorious Christian life. As I have been saying and will keep on saying, only Jesus can give us a life that matters. St. Bernard, not the dog, but St. Bernard of Clairvaux was one who knew this. He wrote toward the middle of the 12th century. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. Look at verse 16 with me. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. It's at this point that Jesus abruptly changes the conversation by asking her to go call her husband. At first glance, you might think, this is the cruelest thing that Jesus could do to this woman. Why? Well, we know by reading ahead that Jesus knows everything about her history, but still asks her to go call her husband. And suddenly, this woman who's been so chatty doesn't want to talk so much now. In the Greek text, it's like three words. It would literally read, husband don't have. In verse 17, she replies, I have no husband, to which Jesus replies, you big, fat liar. (laughs) No, Jesus is a little more gracious than that. He tells her she's actually had five husbands in the past. She was sort of the Elizabeth Taylor of the Bible. At this point, she has totally given up on the institution of marriage and is now, as my father used to say, She's just shacking up. It should be noted, though, that by refusing to call the man she was currently living with her husband, Jesus rejected the notion that merely living together constitutes marriage. The Bible views marriage as a formal, legal, public covenant between a man and a woman. And so Jesus put his finger on the one thing in her life she probably wanted to forget and certainly doesn't want to talk about. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why not just let our past be the past and pretend like it never happened? Please listen carefully as I tell you the reason. Jesus is saying, let's talk about your relationship with the opposite sex. Now, God wouldn't say that to all of us. To some of us, he may say, let me see your checkbook, or bring me those magazines you're hiding, or that bottle you have tucked away in the closet. By doing this, Jesus is purposely bringing her sinful past right out into the open. The woman responds by saying that I have no husband, which is the truth, but it's not the whole truth, is it? By saying she has no husband, this is her shortest response in the entire conversation. She is obviously wanting to change the subject. But by doing this, Jesus brings all of her sinful past right out into full view. Jesus tells her, the whole truth of the matter is you've been married five times, and at this point in your life, you're just living in fornication. Let me tell you why I think he does this. By bringing out into the open this woman's sin, he wants her to know that he knows who she truly is. I mean, after all, if we don't understand that we are sinners, then why do we need the forgiveness of a Savior? So why does Jesus confront her with the ugliness of her sinful past? He does this so that when he does forgive her and save her, she will know forever that he forgave her and saved her, knowing every vile and foul thing about her. She will forever know that when he loved her and saved her, he loved her and saved her knowing everything, her warts and all. But if he had not confronted her with the fullness of her past, there would always have been the sense with her that he loved me and he saved me, But if he had really known what I was like, if he had really known where I've been and what I've done, he would never have given a sinner like me the time of day, much less die for me. And so perhaps Jesus, wanting to spare her what the devil could one day whisper in her ear, following her salvation, would say, listen, let's just put it all out onto the open. This way you will know that when I forgave you, I forgave you knowing exactly what I was getting. After all, she's been married five times. And there's an interesting thing about that. Back then, it was almost impossible for a woman to initiate a divorce. In Deuteronomy 24, if a man found some kind of indecency with his wife, he was allowed to put her away. Remember, I told you in a previous sermon that the Samaritans followed the first five books of Moses. So apparently... This woman has had five different men say, I cannot live with this woman for one more minute. The text doesn't tell us why. Maybe she couldn't cook or had body odor or just refused to shave her legs. We don't know. I wasn't going to say that. Prayed that I wouldn't, but did anyway. Anyway but this latest information around five husbands does solve a riddle you may not have known existed back in verse six we read this now jacob's well was there jesus therefore being wearied from his journey set thus by the well it was about the sixth hour the sixth hour by jewish reckoning would be noontime now why is that significant because the cool of the morning was the time when women customarily performed that chore. This woman came at high noon, perhaps because to avoid, and to avoid the public shame that she had. She, for reasons that was mentioned, was an outcast. I love Max Licato here, he writes, Consider the Samaritan woman. By the time Jesus met her, she was on a first century version of a downward spiral. Five ex-husbands and decades of loose living have left her tattooed and tabooed. Gossifers wab their tongues about her. How else can you explain her midday appearance at the water well? Other women filled their buckets at sunrise, but this woman preferred the heat of the sun over the heat of their scorn. What is Max saying? Simply this. She would rather come to draw water in the hottest part of the day then face the hostility and the scorn of the other women at that well earlier in the day. The point is, is the Samaritan woman was the poster girl for shame. She is the wrong gender, the wrong ethnicity, and the wrong religion. She has been rejected by her husband and her peers. The well she was drawing from was the well of relationships. This is why we have to be careful of how we view those who don't yet know Christ. They may be involved in things that are repulsive to us, but there is always the possibility they are seeking for something to give their lives meaning. Notice the skill with which the physician of our soul handles the scalpel of conviction. You said well, he said. He found something in her to approve. Jesus shows both grace and truth. I love him for that because that's how he deals with me. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's grace. Yet because there can be no salvation without conviction, he always speaks the truth. Notice also Jesus didn't say, you've had five husbands. Let's talk about husband number one, Sam. Then we'll talk about why you left George in session two. Come back the next week and in the third session we'll talk about Pete. In session four we'll discuss Harry. I just thought none of those are good Jewish names, are they? <laughs> but it didn't take Jesus five sessions to discuss her husbands. He didn't delve into codependency dependency or into the women's past iniquities. Yes, Jesus revealed her sin, but he didn't revel in it. And that's a big difference. I think it's dangerous for people who mean well to start reveling in the past sin of another by talking about it, exploring it, and pursuing it. Jesus does not model this for any minister of the gospel or for any servant of the kingdom. He simply says, I know you're a sinner, you know you're a sinner, now let's go on from there. Verse 19, please. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. To which mountain is a Samaritan woman referring? It's Mount Gerizim where the Samaritan temple was built. The woman is about to ask a hot theological question of her day. And often the same kind of thing will happen when you try to share with someone who are feeling the gentle hand of conviction upon them. You'll hear questions like, did Adam have a belly button? Or where did Cain get his wife? Or how could all the animals fit on the ark? Or how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? It's 11, by the way. So instead of listening to Jesus, she tried to get him on a detour by discussing the differences between the Jewish and the Samaritan religions. I found it's much more comfortable to discuss religion than it is to face one's own sins. I do not know what Miss Manners would have thought of the Lord Jesus Christ if she had been living in the first Christian century and had heard him teaching people and speaking to them. But I am sure if she had overheard this conversation with the woman of Samaria, which we have been studying, at one point at least, she probably would have pronounced Jesus as being bigoted and intolerable. Jesus had spoken to the Samaritan woman about her sin, reminding her that she was living with a man with whom she is not married. And this would be enough to one who thinks, first of all, of etiquette to be bad. But then, after the woman had obviously and politely tried to change the subject by asking the Lord's opinions on the rival Samaritan and Jewish claims about God and the proper form of worship, Jesus actually claimed that the Jewish way of worship was the only valid one and that the Samaritans knew nothing spiritually. Jesus is cutting through all the woman's arguments and revealing her desperate need of salvation. This is so vital. Because the majority of people think they are just fine. It's pretty common for people who have a sense of morality to convince themselves that they don't really need a Savior. They will say things like, Hey, I'm not a bad person. It's not like I've ever killed anyone. Maybe not physically, but we've all killed people in our hearts. And if God shone His light upon the rippling effects personally, of all my unkind words over the years and of all those that I could have helped with my time and resources, but instead I squandered on my own luxury, I am undoubtedly in need of a savior. With tremendous insight, Ravi Zacharias writes, Jesus began his tender yet determined task to dislodge her from the well-doctored and cosmetically dressed up theological jargon she threw at him so she could voice the real cry of her heart. Almost as if he were peeling off layers of an onion, he steadily moved her away from her own fears and prejudices, from her own schemes and self-preservation, from her own poise for hiding her hurts, to the radiant and thrilling source of her greatest fulfillment, Christ himself. He finishes by saying, in short, he moved her from the abstract to the concrete, from the concrete to the proximate, and finally from the proximate to the personal. She had come to find water for the thirst of her body. He fulfilled a greater thirst, that of her soul. Verse 21, please. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming, when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Jesus once again reveals her spiritual ignorance. She did not not know who to worship, where to worship, or even how to worship. He made it clear here that all religions are not equally acceptable before God. And because of that, some worshipers act in ignorance and unbelief. There is a twofold sense in which salvation is from the Jews. First, the revelation of salvation came first to them and then to the rest of the world. And second, the source of salvation, namely the Messiah, was himself a Jew. We must ask ourselves, what is worship? Part of that answer is to be seen in the fact that if you and I had been living in England during the days of the early formation of the English language, we would not have used the word worship at all. We would have said worthship, as in assigning worth to something. And we would admit that in worshiping God, we were assigning true worth to him. This is the same thing as praising God or glorifying his name. In verse 22, Jesus says that this woman and Samaritans worship what they do not know. That's a strange concept, isn't it? How is it possible to worship something or someone and not truly know what it or they are? This has to be the height of deception to think I know who or what I'm worshiping, but in fact, I'm truly ignorant of it. So it is possible for one to spend their entire lives assigning worship to something or someone, And in the end realized it was not worthy of any type of worship, since worship should only be attributed to God Almighty. And basically, wherever we spend the majority of our time, talent, and treasures, that is what we truly worship. Listen to the words of 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God will live forever. What am I saying to us? Don't be deceived by this world and the things of it. If Satan can get us to take our eyes off God and the kingdom, we will remain deceived. We don't want to be like the Samaritans. We need to know if we are truly worshiping and serving the only one who is worthy for us to do that. As we close this morning, in his book, The Church Awakening, Chuck Swindoll shares a story with us. He writes, if you ever go to Israel, don't miss the Yad Vashem Museum. It stands as an imposing yet mute reminder of the dreadful Holocaust the swept across Europe through the late 1930s and the first half of the 1940s. The building itself is intentionally dull, drab, and gray. It penetrates the Jerusalem skies as well as the consciences of those who visit it. As many times as I've been there, it still moves me to tears. The pathway through the the museum winds its way back and forth along painful scenes where you see life-size images of hollow-eyed individuals, living skeletons, not knowing what kind of future they faced. Piles of children's shoes are stacked on the floor. Video testimonies reveal the savage, inhumane murders committed by the Nazi regime. It's the only museum I've ever seen that has more exits than entrances. Many people can't make it all the way through. Some stand and stare. A few even collapse to the ground. If you're not wiping away tears by the end, you're not getting the message. It's heart-rending. No one talks. Everyone shakes his or or her head in disbelief. When you get to the end of the museum, you enter the room of of remembrance and witness notebook after notebook after notebook after notebook of shelves filled with notebooks containing the names of the six million Jews who were killed, all entries done by hand. The museum even preserved the iron sign written in German that hung over the entrance of Dachau, Arbreit Mach Frey, which interpreted means, work makes you free. Most victims who passed through that gate believe that lie. But what stood out most to me was a statement printed in one of the official documents distributed to the Nazi guards overseeing the death camps. It read, the camp's law is that those going to their death should be deceived until the end." Did you catch those last four words? Deceived until the end. Today, we are living in a culture that is politically correct but is ethically, theologically, and morally corrupt. Right down to our core, our culture is totally depraved. In times like this, we will encounter enemy attacks, in any number of areas. And while we ought not to live in fear of them, we dare not remain ignorant of them either. The enemy loves for us to stay ignorant of his schemes, or better yet, to just think of him with a shrug. His desire, that people be deceived until the end. It is my prayer this morning that that will never be said of anyone in this room. Lord, you are the only one that is worthy of worship. And I pray, Father, today that as you scan this room, you know every individual in here. And, Lord, you know what they need. I pray whether it's salvation, sanctification, or strength and encouragement, whatever it is, oh God. I pray they would not leave here today without that having, having that happen in their heart. We thank you for who you are. You're the only one who can quench our thirst. We ask in Christ's name, amen. This being the first Sunday of the month, ask John Biscop to come up. We'll take communion. We ask that you take the elements.